January in a three-week Christmas series called He Is Our Peace. He is our peace. And of course, the he is who? Jesus. All right, always the answer in church. Jesus is our peace. He is our peace. Uh, and of course, this comes from the announcement at his birth. At his birth, this announcement comes from the heaven. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill to all humankind. The coming of Jesus is about peace. Peace on earth and goodwill. So the birth of Jesus happened in a very dark time, a time of great violence, a time of great oppression, and a time where there was not goodwill being shared among humankind. And so the birth of Jesus was really an entire foreshadow of what God was gonna do century after century, including today and beyond, to increase peace on earth, increase goodwill toward all humankind, and increase peace even in our own, in our, our own lives. But, you know, what is peace? Peace is one of those sort of subjective words. If I asked you what kind of peace do you want to experience, you might have an answer that's very unique to you. If I asked the person next to you what kind of peace do you want to experience, you might have an entirely different answer. And so peace is not really this universally understood thing where we all share the same definition of peace. Uh, and so, as with most things, uh, the concept of peace has been overanalyzed and overstudied and categorized into different kinds of peace. One kind of peace is called negative peace, which I don't quite understand. It's like saying negative positivity. There are totally opposites. So the concept of negative peace means that your hope is in things not happening. That's negative peace. Everything that is negative out there being removed, so chaos being removed, violence being removed, negative things out there being removed, that could be your definition of peace. I want conflict to stop in my family. I want conflict to stop in the world. That's a vision of negative peace. Things not happening will bring me peace. Make some sense? Kind of a weird definition. There's a different kind of peace that is more in our control because the reality of negative peace is we are not in control of what other people do. We're not in control of the violence in the world. We're not in control of chaos that kind of happens. So if our hope is in things not happening, we're going to be perpetually in turmoil because we can't control that. There's a different kind of peace. It's not negative peace. It's what? Positive peace, very creative. Positive peace, and that's within. That's in our control. It basically says this, whatever is happening in the world around us, whether it's good or bad, right or wrong, peaceful or violent, I'm going to walk a journey of having this positive peace uh, really spring from within me. And I'm in control of that. I'm in control of that. Some of the most inspiring stories that have ever been written, and some of these stories are being written even right now in places that are in terrible conflict, is when people can manage to experience peace even when the world around them is in chaos. Sometimes literal war zones, right, where atrocities are happening around them and people desperately essentially make this commitment to the heavens, this will not destroy my peace. This will not destroy me. So we're gonna walk an intentional journey of trying to find a sense of calm even in chaos. We're gonna try to find a sense of peace even in violence. We're gonna try to find a sense of, of, of calm and warmth and life no matter what happens around me. That's positive peace. And that's the kind of peace I'd like us to explore as we approach Christmas Eve and beyond. Positive peace includes the attitudes that create and sustain a peaceful feeling in any circumstance. Now, to be clear, wanting negative peace, meaning the bad things to stop, is not bad. 
that's actually a good thing. It's a noble thing to want chaos out there to stop and wars out there to stop and oppression out there to stop. That's completely fine. Want that, pray for that, advocate for that. But a lot of that's out of our control. What is in our control is this inner peace that determines I will feel the calmness of the presence and the love of God. I will feel a calmness that comes from, a calm that comes from people around me who I love and who love me. We're gonna find that sense of positive peace. That's why last week we started this series by focusing on inner peace. And that inner peace can have as its very foundation the idea that Jesus reveals who God is and connects us with God. So peace can come on a foundation of Christ himself. So these are the things we talked about last week, that through Jesus, there's a genuine knowledge of God. Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the fullness of God, divinity in human flesh. So through Jesus, we have a knowledge of God that can bring us inner peace. Through Jesus, there's a genuine union with God, unbroken and unbreakable union with God, purely by his grace, given to us freely, given to us before the beginning of time. We just need to know that and believe that. And how can we know that and believe that? Through Jesus. There's a genuine union with God. And even deeper than that, through Jesus, there's a genuine relationship with God a relationship with God where we can talk to him through prayer and, and he sort of speaks to us in, in, in a very sort of mystical and even um, very unique way to each one of us, either through his spirit, through his word, through nature. Each of us can connect with God in a very real way uh, that's unique to us. So this can bring us inner peace. So as we seek positive peace, as we seek inner peace based on who Jesus is to us, what begins to happen? we can then live peacefully. So living peacefully is the focus of today. If we can walk a lifelong journey based on the foundation of the love of God through Jesus to really experience inner peace and positive peace, we begin to live a more peaceful life in the world around us. There's a few ways to do that that I wanna talk about today. One, and we'll spend the bulk of our, our time on this first one, always put people first. If you wanna live a more peaceful life, always put people first. Now, people first is kind of a a cliche if you work in uh, retail, for example. You know, put the customer first. The customer's always right. It becomes kind of a cliche deal. But I'm talking about like a genuine soul-level conviction that I'm gonna look at every single human being on earth and treat every single human being on earth as though they are a dearly loved, handcrafted, beautiful person made in the very image of God. And that is a very unique way to live. Oftentimes we can treat people who are close to us like that. Our family members, our friends, we treat them with dignity, we treat them with respect, there's empathy there, there's care. If they struggle, we can come alongside. But then from there, it kind of falls off really quick. The further arm's length somebody gets or beyond, the the less we humanize them. It's just, it's just normal. It's just natural human relationships. But if we can follow Jesus towards the goal of humanizing everyone, treating everyone as dearly loved and made in the image of God, a peace will be lived out, a peace that this world desperately needs. But there's whole areas of societal life that intentionally dehumanize people. So this is very, very difficult. Uh, four areas real quick. And we've talked about these in previous weeks. The area, the realm of politics intentionally dehumanizes people. You're a Republican, you're Democrat, you're not a human being, you're a, you're a vote. 
And so you're treated like a vote with political ads and political parties and even political debates. Are those humanizing political debates? No, you're the enemy, you're the enemy. I'm right, you're wrong. It's just this dehumanizing thing. Now, politics is necessary, I guess, uh, to keep civilizations civil, but uh, it is really a dehumanizing sport, right? And so we gotta fight you know, through politics. And some of us may have deep political convictions, there's nothing wrong with that, but that doesn't mean we have to dehumanize people who don't agree with us. They're just people who don't agree with us, right? And we can actually treat people who disagree with us politically as dearly loved, made in the image of God. It is actually possible. The other area of life, as we've talked about here quite a bit, that intentionally dehumanizes people is religion. Religion is about, hey, we believe the right things, you don't. We're believers, you're unbelievers. We worship, worship the right way, you don't. Uh, this doctrinal thing we have nailed and you don't. We worship the right Jesus and you don't. I mean, it's dehumanizing. We can't have kind of civil disagreements about matters of faith. It's no, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm saved, you're not. I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell. It gets crazy out there, crazy. And it's all dehumanizing, right? So we gotta fight these giant, what I would call like, you know, forces uh, in, within, you know, civilizations that dehumanize each other, politics, religion, uh, and it could be as, as simple as being inconvenienced. Um, as you're driving in traffic, we dehumanize everybody around us. They're traffic. They're in our way. I told you in my epiphany a couple years ago, it's like, I'm traffic. <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> That's not right. That doesn't feel good. It took me 51 years to recognize as I'm, you know, shaking my fist at the traffic. It's like, I'm the traffic, dummy. And so now, I, you know, just sit in traffic and go. We've talked about that before. It's just one little example of how we can intentionally humanize people that we consider to be inconveniences. Um, I, I, in the store, I, I had to practice this two days ago. I'm in the store, and you know this. You get through the express line. I had four things. I'm getting in the express line, and this lady was in front of me who had legitimately like exactly 15, actually I counted 17 things, close enough, <laughs> close enough. But the pace at which she took out her card, the inability to do a card transaction on that keypad, the 16 questions she asked the cashier about her personal life. I mean, I felt this thing, I gotta go, I have to go. And then I realized, Treadway, in two days you're gonna preach a sermon about humanizing. <laughs> You know, work on this, work on this. This is a human being dearly made in the image of God, I guess, right? <laughs> Probably needs a conversation with a cashier and just all right, enjoy the moment, right? Absolutely enjoy the moment. It's very difficult for us to humanize people who have offended us. This is a big deal. So if there's a family member who might have offended you, or worse yet, might have even you know, hurt you with their words, if you've been offended or hurt in some way, the human brain has a self-defense mechanism that puts a wall between you and that person to protect you. So part of that is totally understandable and sometimes we need that wall and sometimes we need that protection. If somebody is intentionally trying to harm you and continually harming you and, and may want to harm people you love, sometimes that protection is needed and boundaries are appropriate. But sometimes the brain just categorizes them as a threat even if it might have been an offense that you could forgive. And maybe it's an offense that has caused this wall to be built, but really there's a restoration journey ahead if we would humanize that person. And to sort of have the same epiphany that I had, that I'm the traffic, well, I've offended people too. 
and I might not have been intentional, so maybe I can believe the best about this person and maybe I can walk a road of forgiveness. And maybe I could say, hey, it's been a while, can we chat? Can we humanize people even who might have offended us? And again, I wanna say if, if somebody's out to harm you, protect yourself for sure, I'm not saying that, but are there people around us, even in our own family, that these walls have just been built and we've dehumanized that person? They're just the offender and I'm the offended and that's just the way it is. Humanize them. Maybe there's a story there. Maybe they're angry. Maybe they've been hurt by somebody and they're just acting out, right? All this, all this stuff. So what does it look like to actually humanize people that are so easy to dehumanize? In political realms and religious realms and just the inconvenience of people getting in our way day to day or people who have offended us. But let's look to the example of Jesus. Jesus is a master of humanizing people. And you could argue theologically, well, yeah, he's the creator of God Almighty who actually made everybody in his image. Uh, so yeah, of course he's cheating. He can then humanize people that have been dehumanized. But let's look at the examples, specific examples of how Jesus went to people who had been dehumanized, humanized them, treated them the way they deserve to be treated, dearly loved, made in the image of God. We'll go quick. Women caught in adultery, John chapter eight. The religious mob was going after her, right? And religious mobs are everywhere. Religious mobs exist to this very day. Christianity is at the top of the list of where religious mobs live. I don't know what's going on with my mic. We'll just pretend it's my fault, although it's probably not. But uh, religious mobs are out there everywhere looking for people to dehumanize. So here is this woman caught in adultery, immediately judged and condemned by the religious mob who are trying to put her to death in John chapter eight. And Jesus has nothing to do with this. Nothing to do with it. In fact, he steps in, really at his own risk, kneels down with her, says you're forgiven, you just need to know you're forgiven, tells everybody else, you know, if you're without sin, cast the first stone, so just makes the you know, playing field level, lifts her up, loves her, and says, now let's live a better life. You're ruining your life, right? We could do better. All in the context of love. He humanized her in the face of a religious mob who dehumanized her. Then there's the blind beggar in Luke chapter 18. 2,000 years ago, if you had a, a, a physical disability, you were considered to be cursed by God, no joke. There's some people who still believe that. Well, your life is going wrong because you did something wrong, right? So God's gonna get you. That's the way it was back there. So here's a blind beggar, and he's out there just trying to you know, eat every day off of the crumbs of people around him, totally dehumanized. Jesus kneels down has a conversation with him, treats him like a human being, dearly loved, made in the image of God, and cares for him and brings him healing. The Samaritan woman at the well, John chapter four. Here's this woman in public. Men were not supposed to speak to women in public. It was forbidden, dehumanizing. She was Samaritan. She had the wrong blood flowing through her veins, so they thought. Ends up, DNA says, no difference in her ethnicity. But because she was labeled as a race that was looked down upon, she was marginalized and dehumanized. Not only that, she had some moral problems, right? Uh, a little bit of a uh, flusy, right? And uh, so she was judged as someone who just was not dialed in the way the religious expectations uh, wanted her to be. And so he treats her as a human being, has a conversation with her, talks to her, knows her, forgives her, lets her know, hey, you are forgiven and let's move forward in a better way, humanizes her. How about the thief on the cross, Luke chapter 23? Thief on the cross. No one cared about people being crucified. No one cared about him. 
They were utterly dehumanized, being murdered in the most horrifically torturous way. And so here is Jesus, who himself was being crucified, loved this person next to him and wanted this person next to him in his final hours, in his final days, uh, in his final breath, to know, hey, you are loved and you are forgiven. Himself dealing with the guilt of his own failure. I think I'm gonna need that mic, thanks. Dealing with his own failures, dealing with the fact that he was under condemnation and being crucified, also dealing with the fear that when he breathes his last breath, he may be facing the judgment and the wrath and the condemnation of God. All this you can imagine swirling around the head of the one being crucified next to Jesus. And Jesus has the selflessness and wherewithal to give him comfort. Today, you're gonna be with me in paradise today. Even as you're being crucified, I wanna give you just a little bit of peace a little bit of peace that you are in the hands of God and you're gonna be fine. Jesus saw a human being. And then how about the Roman soldiers, the ones who were actually murdering Jesus? Jesus loved them and humanized them. I don't know if I would humanize my murderer. but That's exactly what Jesus was doing. And he said out loud with his mouth so they could hear, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He even humanized the ones who were murdering him so that they would have a little bit of peace, that while they were perpetrating what could be argued the greatest injustice in human history, murdering the Son of God, Jesus wanted them to know they are loved and they are forgiven. Dearly loved, made in the image of God, Jesus humanized everyone, the thief on the cross, his own murderers, and everyone who had been marginalized by the religious mobs and the political mobs, he humanized every single one. And I'm telling you, we have got to guard dehumanizing people. Politically, religiously, we have to guard dehumanizing people by judging them, labeling them, condemning them. We've got to guard our tendencies, and we all have them, to have biases. When it comes to religious biases, moral biases, racial biases, we all have them. We've got to fight human nature to try to strive to live the life that Jesus lived, which is to intentionally Put in the work to treat everybody as dearly loved and made in the image of God. And I thank God for this church because we are trying to do that. We're trying to get past the sort of tribalism and camps and we're right and they're wrong and we're blessed and they're condemned and we've got the answers and they don't. Try to push through all of that and humanize everyone. That's the journey we're on. On a very personal level, this Christmas, we can do the same beginning in our own household. If you're gonna come across somebody in your family who might have offended you or you don't get along with and you just kinda, well, I, I just don't really wanna talk to that person or you know, they offended me and I think we're kinda done here, really kinda think through how can I humanize that person, empathize with that person and maybe try to build a bridge. Don't see your kids by their struggles. Sometimes with parenting, we see the struggles that kids have and, and they might have some behavior issues or academic issues and they might not do their chores around the house and things just kind of get negative at times. We gotta battle that, not look at our kids by their struggles or shortcomings, but humanize everyone in our house. Humanize the person who has even sort of made mistakes or offended you. Humanize people in you know, our neighborhoods and on our roads and in the stores who might be getting in our way. Don't see people as inconveniences and don't see people as annoyances. All that is dehumanizing. Sound easy, huh? It's pretty difficult. There's a very famous story that just has to be told here in Luke chapter 10. It's the story of Mary and Martha. And this is exactly what was going on here. 
a house full of people. And you're going to have a house full of people, or you're going to go to a house full of people, and, and there's going to be a lot going on, a lot of life, a lot of noise, a lot of people, a lot of activities maybe. And so here's Martha, and she decided to be the host of this big party. And the guest of honor was Jesus, the very son of God. And so, you know, no pressure, Martha. But uh, she wanted everything to be perfect. And she was working real hard. And you can sympathize with that. So, some of you who have, uh, you know, had guests over and you might be wired to say, I want this to be dialed in. I want that meal to be dialed in. I want this place to be clean, right? So all the details are getting worked on. Martha's working on all the details and the house is just full of people. And then Martha's sister, Mary, is slacking. And some of you are like, oh, yeah, just like, and then you got a list. <laughs> so here's what went down. This is Luke chapter 10. Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and narked on Mary, her sister. No doubt she's been doing this her whole life. Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you, <laughs> right, that uh, my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Could you tell her to come and help me? Totally narking to God incarnate. <laughs> so... Uh, trying to bust her sister for slacking. Here's what the Lord said to her. My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and will not be taken away from her. He didn't light up Martha, but he was graciously saying, hey, listen, Mary is experiencing something here that will not be taken away from her. And what Mary was experiencing was the humanity of that gathering. Martha was all about the lists, that meal's got to be dialed in, the house has got to be cleaned, we want everybody taken care of. She was worried about the details. Mary was worried about the people, the people, humanize everyone. And let me just kind of put this on the table. You can decide to do with this what you will. But if you have more details in your holiday life that will box out your ability to connect with human beings, then downgrade the details. I'll give you a little example. Um, years ago, we totally ditched the idea of cooking Christmas Eve dinner because it was a lot, right? It was a lot. Not for me, <laughs> but it was a lot. Uh, you know, we got Christmas Eve services, we got a ton of them, and it's busy and we're tired, and the last thing we need to do is make a Christmas Eve dinner. So we just go pick up Chinese food, right? Just have a simple Chinese. We just got rid of a lot of details so that we can more enjoy being here with you all, this family of faith, and then when we get home, we can just enjoy each other and not have to worry about more details and details. So maybe simplify your life, even if it means downgrading a lot of activity that might even be part of your tradition, so we can spend more time with people, people, people. And I'll throw this out there, and please do not use this as a weapon. I trust you. Sometimes people who want everything to be perfect want to be seen as the one who is perfect, right? It's not really all about making other people feel as though they're warmly welcome, but sometimes it's about the person wanting to project that they did it all and they did it right. Just think about that, simmer on that. Do not use that as a weapon you promised, right? But it's okay to simplify. It's okay to maybe downsize the details. There's something also here that I think has got to be really highlighted. Jesus said, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over the details. So, humanize people, but keep the little deals the little deals. Keep the little deals the little deals. What was Jesus saying to Martha? You're making big deals 
out of little deals. Mary's humanizing people, and she's loving hanging around each other, but Martha, you're just making big things out of little things. And we can tend to do that especially during the holidays. And our brains are wired to make big deals out of little deals. I'm going to give you a couple of examples here. She wants to go to a restaurant that I don't really like. Big deal or little deal? Little deal, good job. It gets harder as we go. Little deal, little deal. But the brain doesn't say it's a little deal. Keep in mind, the brain is wired to see threats, right? And so if she wants to go to a restaurant she knows I don't really like, our brain says this. Well, her not wanting to go to a restaurant I don't really like means she isn't interested in what I like, which means she really may not care what I like, which means she really doesn't care for me at all, and we've got a big problem and a big fight. Little deals becoming big deals. We all do it because the brain makes connections that probably aren't even there. Keep little deals the little deals. Ah, oh, she doesn't want to go to a restaurant, uh, or she wants to go to a restaurant I don't really like. I'll get her back. That may be something better than that, but keep little deals the little deals. All right. He keeps throwing his nasty socks on the closet floor every single day. Big deal or little deal? All the guys say, that's a little deal. Women said nothing. Big deal or little deal? Okay, in the grand scheme of things, it is a little deal. I did this. I put my socks on the ground and little deal, right? I'll get to it at some point. I'll get to it and put them in the dirty clothes. I'll get to it. Um, it is kind of a little deal, but um, the brain doesn't think so. And so here's kind of how that goes. Well, he knows I don't like that, which means he may not really care what I like. He may not care what I care about. Therefore, he does not care about me as a human being, and we got to fight, right? So we did this for a while. I left my stuff in our bedroom and in our closet because it's our bedroom and our closet. We don't give home tours in our bedroom and our closet, so who really cares if stuff's... That's, that's my thinking, right? Some of you are totally offended and will never come to this church again. It's like, why not keep the place clean and why not put things where they belong, right? So um, my wife, this is part of our story, it's like a big part of our story, even though it seems small, stopped harassing me about it and just started helping me put things in the dirty clothes. And then I realized after some time, my wife is putting some pretty nasty things away from me and she should not have to do that. It took me 20 years to realize what was going on but we finally started squaring some things away. So it takes a while, be patient, but over time, if we let the little things be the little things, the relationship can still thrive. Now, I'm not saying to ignore the little things at all, but as we address the little things, address them as little things and not addressing them as big things, and then, you know, we can live a more peaceful life. All right, totally pulling this out of the blue. This would never happen in my actual household, but maybe um, you have kids that don't turn off lights. It's, yeah, maybe, it's just hypothetical, like I said, because that's really hard. And, um, and these lights are on. Now, day after day after day, big deal or little deal? Okay, thank you. So one person. <laughs> Objectively, it's a little deal. Now, again, I told you there's getting harder and harder as we go, because there's a lot behind it. Well, you know, is, is it a respect issue? We're we're burning money. It's like real money, and, and, you know, we care about the environment, burning energy. You know, there's just a lot of things you could layer on top of that. But really, at its core, we don't really think our kids are like, I'm going to show my parents today. I'm going to get them today. I'm not going to show them. It doesn't go through their head. 
It's just you do your thing and you walk out, and kids got a lot in their brains. They're heading to school, which is all kinds of complicated things and lots to navigate socially. And here we're concerned about turning off a light, right? So, again, we're humanizing and then keeping the little deals to little deals. Now, does that mean we never, ever address the little things like chores and light bulbs? And th- No, we address them, but we address them as little deals, and we don't assume it's the greatest disrespect that any parent has ever, you know, experienced in their life. This one's going to just create craziness. You're the second car at a red light. The red light turns green, and that person doesn't go. That's a big deal. <laughs> I was like, come on, you're such an idiot. I, 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 I get more unreasonably furious at that than I think anything else in life. It's like, you know, I had to get over that because two years ago, I was that jabroni who did that. I got distracted by something and a honk. And I'm like, okay, well, I, on my bucket list was to never fail to do an immediate acceleration on a green light if I'm, and I failed that two years ago. Two years, one month, three days ago. So to have the humility to say, okay, listen, I don't turn off all light bulbs. I'm not, you know, paying attention 100% of the time. I'm not showing maximum respect to everybody always. So to have the humility to say, I'm a flawed person. There are flawed people around me. There's flawed people in my home. I can maybe let the little deals be the little deals because, and this is just a little thought experiment, if we amped up every little deal, and if people amped up every little deal towards me, there'd be out and out war and not a single relationship would survive. So if we keep little deals the little deals, still addressing them as little deals, we'll be a lot better off, a lot better off. So always see people first. Let the little deals be the little deals. And finally, and this will go quick, see the positive. See the positive. This one's more difficult than we might imagine because nobody thinks they're negative. Not a single person has said to me, you know, I'm kind of a downer, right? You know, I just see the worst and everything. Nobody thinks that about themselves. Everybody thinks they're the most positive, cheerful person on earth, but you're not. (laughs) We all kind of tend to see the negative. And there are some people who are just flat out grumpy, absolute grumpy, and see the negative and always criticizing everybody. That person believes they're the most positive person on the face of the earth. So that's the challenge here is, well, how will we know if we're negative? Because no negative person thinks they're negative. So it's difficult. This is very, very difficult. But what we can do is try to be as sober-minded as we can and as self-reflective as we can about whether we see the positive or the negative. Um, now, the reality at the time of Jesus was that things were objectively negative. The Romans had invaded, I think, 92 years before Jesus was at the end of his life, um, and they had been oppressed and invaded multiple times before that by multiple kingdoms for hundreds and hundreds of years, about a, uh, roughly 900 years. So the nation of Israel, the nation that Jesus was born into, was an objective mess, oppression after oppression after oppression, injustice, forced poverty, violent cruelty. Jesus was born into a scene that was objectively negative. And so at the time of the birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus, people were generally culturally negative. This is terrible. This is awful. We thought God promised us a kingdom of prosperity. There is none. We thought God promised us a kingdom of might, military might, we have none. We thought God promised us this expanded, 
you know, boundary of a prosperous nation, we have functionally no nation. We thought God promised that we would rule over the whole earth. That's what they thought, that God promised we would rule over the whole earth, and we are the ones who are ruled over by superpowers. They had lost hope. They saw the negative. They were in a deep, deep national depression as a people. And here comes Jesus. Now, most revolutionaries at the time were like, take up your sword, take up your shield, we're going to war. And that's the way things are gonna turn around. And Jesus says, I have a different idea. How about we love our neighbor? What? How about we love our enemies? Huh? How about we rethink the whole idea of kingdom? And it's not about politics, and it's not about government, and it's not about nations, and it's not about boundaries, and it's not about armies, and it's not about violence at all. And we reimagine a whole new kingdom of love, loved by God, loving each other, serving each other, advocating for the best in our neighbor. If an enemy forces us to give him his jacket, we are going to voluntarily give a shirt. If we are forced by a Roman soldier to walk a mile, we're going to ask to walk the second mile. This is the whole new way of life that Jesus imagined. And it's all about living peacefully. And it's hard for us to get our heads around this new kind of kingdom, but that is exactly what Jesus said. In the face of violence in John chapter 18, Jesus answered a Roman governor who was about to sentence him to death, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is not of this world. He says, my my followers are not going to fight you, Rome. My followers are not going to fight the religious leaders. We're not going to fight political oppression or religious oppression with swords. We are going to live a life of love. And we're going to serve our neighbor, and we're going to love our enemies, and we're going to pray for those who persecute us, and we're going to see a positive kingdom emerge in the midst of chaos. And that's exactly what happened. This kingdom started by Jesus 2,000 years ago, at the birth of Jesus, the announcement goes out, peace on earth, goodwill toward everybody. And now 2,000 years later, we're still trying. We're not there yet, but we're trying, and we're trying, and we're trying to humanize everyone, to keep the little deals the little deals, to treat everybody with absolute respect, and to see the, see the positive. See the positive in our family, the positive in our world, the positive in our community, See the positive in our own life. Even though we might be struggling, there's positive things to say, God, thank you for my life. Thank you for my family. Yes, it might be messed up, but thank you. Thank you for this big, beautiful world I get to live in. And yes, there's some deep problems, but I'm gonna see the positive. Thank you for this kingdom of heaven that is here, right here and now, this light of heaven that is growing in a dark world, and we get to be a part of that. Because this peace on earth is not just a promise at the birth of Jesus. This peace on earth is through Jesus that we've received, and we can be the peace on earth. We can live peacefully. Would you pray with me? God, these are not easy concepts. It is not easy to imagine what it would be like to humanize everyone around us. It's not easy to keep little things from becoming big things in our minds it's not easy to see the positive when there are a lot of real challenges in our own heart and mind. There's challenges in our family and our community, challenges in our nation, and challenges in this world. 
But God, we follow Jesus, and Jesus humanized everyone. We follow Jesus who told Martha, you're making too much out of too little. Jesus who brought this kingdom of heaven and says, focus on this beautifully positive thing that this world is birthing, the kingdom of heaven on earth, a kingdom of love received and love given. Help us to live peacefully. Help us to be an agent of peace in our own community and in our own family. And may he be our peace this Christmas season and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.